0: Originally I think I found you because a another guest was talking about yep. your work. And then I also doubly found you because of Anderson Ranch, who, which I oh. love dearly.
1: That's cool. I haven't been there in a little while, but that's great that, that you found Yeah, me but there. you're yeah.
0: still on their website, you know. Okay,
1: cool. <laughs> Good. I mean, I would love to to get back there. You know, the pandemic just changed everything, so haven't haven't done any of those workshops and things that used to be kind of fairly regular process. So
0: I would love to ask you about that because I've often wondered about workshop running. I've never done it. I've wanted mm-hmm. to do it. How do you do it?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in my case, I was just, it was similar to this podcast. You know, somebody was doing a workshop and said, hey, you should look at what Tom's doing. And then so, uh, you know, some place or another reached out to me went and did a workshop and went okay. And then I, I do feel like it's a pretty close knit group. So it's kind of like, oh, if you've done Anderson ranch, we'd like to have you do this thing over here at this other similar organization. And it's it's been fun to do those things. It's also like, for me personally, it's been really exhausting too, because I, I have a family, I have young kids. You know, generally, I'm going to do that in the summer when I'm not teaching, and and you know, you know that like the summertime is pretty precious in terms of your own studio capability. So you are always a little bit of a trade off, where it's like, okay, I'm going to spend two weeks doing this workshop, and then the the related travel, and then I'm going to get back, and I won't have seen the family for a while, and all these different things. So there's a lot of like back and forth about that, but it has been a great way to just learn about different artists learn about different models interact with like a lot of students who don't attend the school that i teach at which is kind of refreshing in a a way and then i've just met so many interesting people and then again you know it's opened up some opportunities and things
0: well see the thing i thought about was when i sat back because i I was talking to somebody from the main college and they were like oh yeah well just send us a proposal for a workshop sure i'm like and i sat there and i'm just like what what can i offer that is somehow unique or special that basically anybody else couldn't offer and i couldn't come up with anything it's been a year and a half now i still haven't come <laughs> up with anything so i mean like how do you yeah how do you come up with these top sort of workshops other than technical things because i know you're super technical so aside from technical things
1: that that has been a real gateway for me is is the technical thing and it gets me in the door but i wasn't always working in a technical way and i, I guess you know, I've I've kind of experienced both sides of that. But I will say that I was introduced to workshops. I'm now remembering because when I was thinking about going to graduate school, this person that I thought I wanted to study with was doing a workshop and I was able to like cobble together some funds and get get some assistance and go to this workshop. And it was actually an incredible, wonderful experience. And I did end up going to this graduate school and, and having all this kind of prior experience with this person that became a mentor was really amazing. And so it was like, not only could I go into grad school feeling very confident about my decision, but also having like laid the groundwork for this relationship, you know, at least whatever it was a year in advance. So that was just awesome. And in that case, the workshop wasn't really anything that was unusual or technical. It was just like, here's this brilliant mind that I want to interface with. I don't know how they proposed the workshop, but
0: I don't think a proposal of, yes, I'm a brilliant
1: mind and people will just want to study with me <laughs> will work these days. Yeah, this was 1999. It was a different era. I, I do think, you know, I, I have this sort of craft background in ceramics and then this kind of tech thing happening in the work. And both of those lend themselves to a kind of workshop mode that that can fall back on like a totally technical exercise of has to. I would like to hope that the workshops include a lot more than that. But I do think that gets me in the door. And there is, I guess, in these craft communities and, and to some extent in sort of a tech art community, a real focus on on process that in a lot of culture of demonstration that I find is different from like when I, w- I, I studied painting as an undergraduate. And I felt like you, you don't talk that much about the, the the technique. And there's a lot of things that people kind of keep to themselves about what they're doing technically. And and one of the things that actually got me interested in ceramics was like, oh, this community is like falling over to share resources with each other. Like they just can't stop sharing their, you know, technique, their recipe, whatever it may be.
0: Well, I think a lot of that is is that the resources to do it, you know, so kilns and mm-hmm. all the other stuff like they're expensive, they're big, they you know, and so not everybody can afford them. So y- you share equipment. I think printmakers are also very much into the same kind of thing because the you know, those big presses, not everybody can afford them, not everybody has space for them, all that kind of stuff. So like there are certain disciplines. So like ceramics, printmaking, these people are very community oriented sharing oriented then there are people like me like photographers like we are not sharing people at all <laughs> no, and and we're also incredibly incredibly impatient as well so yeah I mean I I love the the sharing community I wish photography and painting and all these people would be more like that uh, like a lot of my friends end up being printmakers because I love the sort of communal nature of that
1: Yeah, I'm finding too with some of the tech stuff that there's in certain pockets, there's some of that where, for example, like in open source software tools, it's just remarkable where these people are are sort of saying, hey, this thing that you're trying to do, I I actually tried to do that six months ago and it was a nightmare, but I did make like a a tutorial on how to do it and, and here it is. And that's been this interesting parallel if I'm kind of spending time between trying to like keep up to date on what's really current in 3D modeling and, and working in a digital space with objects. And then at the same time, I'm, I'm like deeply entrenched in a culture of ceramics, which like hasn't introduced a new technology in at least several thousand years.
0: One of the things that I love about your work is the the technical side of it. So like the fact that you're taking an incredibly long tradition of ceramic works and utilizing high-tech stuff, specifically the 3D printer, though I'd love to hear more about some of the other things you come up with. But one of the questions I have about this, because I love the theory of 3D printing, but I, I haven't actually sort of invested the time and the energy and the wherewithal to like really dig into it because there's this nature of the 3D prints that they always look like 3D prints. Like they've always got those little stridations in them, the layering a thing. Like, is there a process to get rid of that to sort of, or, or is that a thing to like show the process? Is that part of it?
1: I would say yes to both things. I mean, it's a thing to show the process and there is also, you know, there are processes to get rid of that and 3D printing, is a big umbrella but most of what we see is like consumer level 3D printing which is material extrusion right whether it's plastic or whether it's clay it's it's a small amount of material usually being pushed through a very small diameter opening in a really controlled way and stacking that up layer by layer but there are other industrial processes that are at such a resolution that you can't possibly make out those layer lines but then there's also this whole world of what an engineer would call post processing but that we would probably call craft, where it's like, okay, this thing has been printed. I now want to begin to manipulate this using a whole set of techniques and processes that I learned well before this kind of came on the scene or something like that. And so with, with clay, it's really intuitive. You, you have all those layer lines and you, you use your thumb and you can just smear them away in, in a really straightforward way. The clay is just typical clay. There's nothing special about the clay.
0: Okay. So that you can do either, but I mean, is it sort of one is accepted more than the other? Because like, it's one of those things, like if I saw a really massive thing and it looked like it was like slab built, I do know some of the technology terminology. (laughs) Thank you. So if it looks like it's slab built, it's somehow less impressive, but like, if it looks like it's 3d printed, it's suddenly like, Ooh, that's, that's using technologies. So like, how much of like you showing off the fact that you did use technologies is that is important versus hiding the fact that you use technologies?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. That you know, I almost want to turn around and and point at you as is in terms of photography that that you could really show your photographic process and it could be highly technical, or you could take the opinion that like I'm telling a story here. the, the less you're concerned with what my lens and film usage is, you know, the, the more you can directly get to this story. But in some cases, the story is all bound up in the technology that underlies the, the creation of that. And so you could certainly go in, a, in any direction with that.
0: You're being very teacherly you're just you're just giving me like
1: well you could do any of it it's all good but i I can tell you how i feel about it
0: there you go that's what i'm looking for
1: Uh, i'll be less teacherly i'll take that (laughs) hat off yeah
0: yeah let's we're talking about you this is your life your career there you go
1: i want the experience of the artwork to not be overwhelmed with how it was made you know I, i i don't want the layer lines to be an impediment that, that like all we can see is the technology that produced the form. So I've worked pretty hard to try and get to a resolution or a way of working, a technical way of working that doesn't showcase those really heavy layer lines in a really prominent way. And, and in fact, that's been a huge technical struggle because the way to do that is to reduce the size of the material that's being laid down and clay is just extraordinarily resistant to what you have to do in order to make that work. You have to push it harder through a smaller opening. It's like, you're just making it, you're asking it to do something it really does not want to do. And that in itself has been fascinating. I'm actually so interested in that from sort of a, a, a materials and mechanical engineering sort of s- standpoint that I have to constantly remind myself, you know, that, that this is like the process and it shouldn't overwhelm the content, right? I do want the experience of the work. If if you found my work in some distant future and you didn't know anything about me, I, I would want whoever's viewing the work to be intrigued by the form, by the material, by the color, by what they would perceive to be the narrative in the work. And, you know, part of that is how it's made, but I certainly wouldn't want that to be like the number one thing that we're focused on, you know, that is that above all else is how this was made, the technology that went into making this. But it's also, you know, I'm I love this technology. I'm really in, like immersed in it, and it's kind of rewired my brain. So it's it's a it's I have to accept the fact that I can't really distance myself from a, a really heavy duty engagement with this process.
0: What do you think about 3D printed houses and buildings?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting stuff, and I it, I sometimes am sort of asked to participate in that whole endeavor right because I have some knowledge of moving like really hard to move materials through this process and so I think sometimes I get this question like could you do that at the size of a house
0: well I know it can be done I've seen it done but the question is is sort of like do you think that's actually like a sustainable thing or is it always going to be like a little niche thing of like it's like it's like a Gaudi house (laughs) you know like not everybody could live in a Gaudi
1: house so I have a criticism, which is that a lot of what we call 3D printed houses are 3D printed walls. There are much less evidence of 3D printed roofs. And so walls are actually the part of the house that is the easiest part, you know, and you can have all kinds of prefabricated walls. So it's kind of like, why are we going through so much effort to create walls? The the upside, what I see as a tremendous potential is if you were going to build something like a roof, you would not do a flat roof, you would probably have to do a dome or a a cone or a triangle or something that could be self-supporting. And so if you did, this is like the optimist in me, you would have a, a, a built environment, you would have neighborhoods or cities, if they were all 3D printed, that would just be so full of domes and interesting pyramidal shaped roofs and conical forms that I think it would actually make for a really interesting skyline. And and it might actually, in an odd way, look much like uh, a much more ancient city where the same forces were in play. They didn't have giant steel girders to span a huge area. So you have to build a dome out of brick, right? And, And in order to do that, you have to sort of battle against gravity and you end up with these unbelievably gorgeous forms that I think we all instinctively look at and love a domed space or these grand public spaces that we, you know, typically don't create so much anymore. So there's a part of me that's hopeful that like the mechanics of 3D printing and its fight against gravity could lead us back to architectural forms that have fallen out of favor because of their expense and their complexity.
0: Yes, that would be exciting. I mean, I've lived in many cities. Like currently, I live in Prague, and it's got a beautiful skyline. So yeah, yeah. And my father's a minister, so like I love the idea of like domes and stuff.
1: Yeah, and it really makes you think about like, well, why are there so few domes, especially in certain parts of the world? And it generally comes down to the complexity and the cost.
0: Oh no, it's cost. It's not complexity. It's always cost. (laughs) Yeah. I've never heard anybody go, No, that's too complex, but the price is fine. Like, no, if the price is fine, they'll do the complex thing. It's always cost. Sure. All right, let's take a step back though. So uh uh-huh. first of all, I-, I always like to ask people to pronounce their names correctly for me, just to make sure I, I do that. So
1: Sure, I'm Tom Lauerman.
0: That is how I would pronounce it. That's great. Okay. Good. The- <laughs> and your background. So like how did you become Creative, so like childhood, parents, what did they do? How did you find the path? Teachers, did your parents encourage you? What was your thing?
1: Yeah, I am definitely one of those people that was interested in art from like extraordinarily early on. So, all those different times in school, like K through 12, where somebody asked you what you want to do, I would be the kid who said, I wanted to do art. I wasn't like a late adopter. I think it goes back to my mother. I know it goes back to my mother, who was not an artist by vocation, but always had some craft project going on, like in the background. And then additionally, my mom had gotten involved in the early computer industry. This is like way back when, working on using the Fortran language, and at some point had worked at Bell Labs, where there was really this incredible work happening in the 60s. And because of her, and she had studied mathematics in college, and that's what kind of, and she was good at typing. And so in the 1960s, it was sort of like, oh, you type really fast and you know math. We can have you do this activity over here. And because of all that, when the personal computer emerged, let's say late 70s, early 80s, what have you, my mom just kind of saw that happen and and told all of us like, oh, we need to get one of these, you know? And so we weren't like the early adopter family that had all the stuff before all the other families, but we definitely had like a computer when nobody in my neighborhood had a computer. And my brother and I were free to just do whatever on this, you know, really basic machine. And we both actually got really interested in trying to do some rudimentary coding and things like that, and to try and be creative with it. He's a, He trained as a musician, I trained as an artist. And from the start, we wanted to use this tool in those ways. And so later on in life, I, I think a lot of people have this a really difficult relationship with technology, but because of the way I was introduced to it I, I I've always felt really at home with it and one of my struggles has been like on the one hand I love ceramics on the other hand I love all this technology like how in the world am I going to bring these two things together they're they're very disparate
0: I totally understand and see like for my me and my family, my brother went down the technological aspect and I went down the artistic side and so like I kind of don't want to play too much with technology because I feel like I'll end up, like, bumping my brother's world in the same <laughs> way that he, he doesn't want to go too artistic because then he'll end up bumping into my world a little too much. Sure. So we, we sort of have our own lanes. But I still love technology. Yeah, but I mean... It, it's, a t- it's a difficult thing because it's, you know, from all the different people that I talk to about, like technologies and NFTs and all the other stupid things that uh-huh. are out there in the world. <laughs> please do not start on NFTs. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> but the, I mean, the difficulty of technologies is a lot of things sort of are are. Gosh, I mean, there's so many. um, The problem is is there's so many technologies. So, like, even within 3D printing, I know that there are, you know, a couple hundred different variations of how to 3D print and what materials can be used and, the you know, whether it's, like, additive or reductive and, like, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all these different things. It's it's a daunting task to choose to start to get into that. I mean, like I find it hard enough just to be able to like back in the day when I was a young photographer to go like, which film should I buy? And there were like three brands and I'm like, ooh, which one of the three? And now there's like thousands of different things. And it's just like, which one is worth investing the time, energy and money, potentially money into doing? And that's a daunting task thing to do. But I guess that goes back to like the workshop idea. So if I could do a workshop and be introduced to a technology that is working for
1: somebody that I admire or
0: respect, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll i tell you, my I have the same feeling about photography. Like I know where my... Photography is
0: easy, man. Anybody can do that shit. Pick up, a, pick up an iPhone.
1: <laughs> it's important, I think, to draw uh, a, 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 some kind of boundary wa- around how far out is your art practice going to extend and, and what does it include and what can it not include. And You know, teaching has been interesting because I have some students who focus in one area really exclusively, and then you have another type of student who wants to do absolutely everything with maybe less depth and more breadth. And it's kind of just like two sides of the same coin. It's really how far are you zooming in or zooming out. And so even if you chose to do ceramics and you're not even going to be involved in any other material, it's still way too much information, way too much. You couldn't possibly know everything you know have this kind of mastery over it so so it's kind of like how far away do you want to back up how many materials do you want to include and then you're always making this trade off of like what level of depth can you have with that and i am prone to like falling deep into various rabbit holes and so like i build the 3d printers that i use i never i have no training in this like I, i never would have guessed or even wanted to do that but it became a necessity in the same way that i think photographers and uh, you know often invent a way of you know working with, with a, a specific piece of hardware or lighting something or processing the film that is you know specific to you so it's all about drawing that boundary
0: okay you brought up a word that i want i want to know what your sort of working definition between these things are which is the difference between craft and art or is there a difference <laughs>
1: I don't. Tr- I I don't feel like there's a huge difference. I feel like these things are totally interwoven.
0: But they haven't always been. That's what I like. Traditionally, the word craft and art had a very distinct difference, and I believe these days it's overlapped more, slash blended more. And so I'm sort of. I'm because uh, I have my own little working definition, which I believe is outdated at this point. So that's why I'm interested to hear what other people are saying.
1: This might be teacherly, but I do feel like it's cyclical, too. Like, if you go back far enough in history, then they're interwoven again. And maybe you go even further back and they're not, right? So,
0: Well, but were they? Because, like, I know what you're talking about, like, the very old, old, like, Roman stuff where we call them art, but they might have called them craft, but we don't know what they called them back then. So is it cyclical or are we sort of in hindsight giving it a cyclical thing?
1: Well, it's just interesting to think about if you went back enough generations, how much time a painter would spend making pigment, right? Uh, not making pigment, but making paint with pigment and and formulating that and getting it to the right consistency. And, and what is that if it's not just a, an insane leap into craft? And that was the necessity in order to practice the medium was to have that level of engagement where it's like you might be procuring your own colorants and your own oils and, and blending all that together. And that's not even all that long ago that that was like the, the de facto mode of preparing paint.
0: Well, but not even long, that long ago, they would have to do that just to paint the walls in their right. house. <laughs> like, so right. that wasn't even like right. creative painting. That was just functional painting also.
1: Yeah. So you didn't until you had paint in tubes. Uh, maybe you didn't have the luxury of saying like, I'm not very interested in craft. <laughs> I'm not capable of divorcing myself from uh, a, a sort of craft perspective. I know there's a, this cultural thing about the way it's received, you know, not the way artists talk about craft amongst themselves, but the way that the world wants to categorize production, obviously, it's a different thing. And that is tricky, you know, because it, it comes down to like, one thing that's funny, is you'll see different types of people working with clay and ceramics, and then those objects going out into the world at just extraordinarily different sort of price points in galleries and, and exhibitions based, you know, kind of on what is the background of the artist and what is the utility of the object that you can be anywhere on a spectrum from $10 to, to priceless, right? For potentially very similar cultural artifacts. It's
0: correct. Yeah. I mean, because like, okay, I, the reason why I come to this question is because years ago I used to be a an art critic for a newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I once wrote a thing in there, basically calling uh, this lady who did a quilt. Uh, I called it a craft. And and she got so upset with me because she felt that she had elevated it beyond craft into a piece of art. And when phrased like that, I agree. So like it, it's, it's, you know, this tradition of craft, Being more sort of based in the term of craftsmanship versus like art, which is it's like you can raise craftsmanship to a level of art. That's part of my working definition. That's what.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot bound up in that anecdote. (laughs)
0: Feel free to tell me how wrong I am. It's fine. No,
1: I, I one of my favorite artists is Anni Albers, right? Who's made textile-based artwork and was prominent in the in the Bauhaus era and and she had this incredible career but at the same time wouldn't have been allowed to study architecture at the Bauhaus. And you think like everybody puts this up as this paragon of, of education and the arts. Like the Bauhaus just knocked down all these barriers and was trying to create a whole new world. And it's like, yeah, but at the same time, they wouldn't let women study architecture. Like that's not the most progressive position that you could take. And so you think about incredibly talented people who are sort of funneled into very specific media and not allowed the, the opportunity to practice a number of other media and then still have a, tr- a profound impact on their field and on arts in a bigger sense. And then you think about what an incredible achievement that is. But then you also think about how someone would feel if they felt like they had been funneled into a discipline that is looked down upon only because of their gender, right? So I, I'm I'm empathizing with this person, because I feel like they could have in, experienced this similar over and over this same perception And anyway it, it, it's complicated politically for sure craft
0: oh yeah don't get me wrong I, I'm fully aware that my remark about her quilt is horribly inappropriate I get that but you know it was 20 years ago and, and I, what did I know I was a young arrogant upstart th- thinking I knew everything which I obviously do not thus the name of the the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so teaching. How's it going in the U.S. these days?
1: (laughs) Oh, that's a very simple question that's not going to be hard to answer. How is it going in the U.S. today with teaching specifically?
0: Yeah, no, I don't want to hear about how is it going in the U.S. period because we all know it's shit. But what I meant is in the teaching industry.
1: It's an interesting time. I, jeez, where to begin with this?
0: Okay, okay. Here, you want me to help you out? I can. Yeah, I do. I want you to help. out. (laughs) I (laughs) I
1: want you to help me out. Give me some more guidance. I
0: came out of graduate school in two thousand one, and you know, with the expectation of like going to teach and all this stuff, and get get a tenure track position and stay there the rest of my life, and like all these great things, you know, that were all promised to us in the nineties and all this that. At this point, I feel like just either don't exist or will never, you know, have gone away and are never going to come back. And it's very, I find it very unfortunate. That's one thing. Secondly, I think a lot of the kids these days are a little bit spoiled and they're, they're not working quite as hard as like the previous generation, let's say. So that's there you go. There's two prompts about that.
1: Perfect. I love both of those prompts. To the first point, I feel like, I can say this, that the, it is teaching as a profession that I feel like I have witnessed in my lifetime become less desirable as a profession for a number of reasons. And everything I can see would indicate that it will continue to become a less desirable profession to enter into. That's just the trend. I mean, I'm just trying to be realistic about it. And so honestly, like something I have to think about is like, what signs should I look for that it has hit a point that I don't want to be involved with this. And I have not hit that point. So I still am choosing to be involved with education. I love teaching. I love teaching. I don't love a lot of things that come with it. But I, it's it would be wrong for me to say, like, it's going great and it's getting better. I just feel like the trend lines are not looking good, especially in art.
0: I'll tell you, I, I hit a line where I was just like, fuck, I don't want to do this for a while, which was I was teaching at a school, I'm not going to mention the name, and they, they called me in at the end you know, for the sort of end of semester. I was an adjunct, so they called me for an end of the semester sort of meeting and stuff. And the the my dean was like, well, we're not going to invite you back next semester to teach again because it seems that the students did not have fun in your class. <laughs> and, I'm, and I just, I just was like, I'm sorry, when was the criteria for a university education that the students have fun in a course. Like I never had fun in any of my courses. I learned that's the nature of a university education, not fun.
1: So this is maybe getting at the second question about, you know, students, are they working less hard?
0: Well, no, not really, because that's more about the idea that a lot of schools are looking at students as customers, quote unquote, and and so like you need to make the customer happy kind of a thing instead of actual academic rigor.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of this is informed by, you know, just bottom line financial realities as well. So I see a huge resistance to courses that are expensive to run, you know, I mean, if if you need a lot of space, a lot of equipment to do something and you're doing something where somebody could actually get injured because it's really intensive studio work. There's just a lot of, it's raising a lot of red flags for an organization that wants to be as efficient and profitable as it it can be. I don't think I'm saying anything controversial there. And unfortunately, like art does not scale well. Uh, Maybe many things don't scale well, but the way that art has traditionally been taught is very, very difficult to scale. And that creates all kinds of problems because there's a tremendous incentive to scale courses to 30, 40, 50, 100, and beyond students enrolled in a course. And you can do that very effectively, especially using technology in certain disciplines. And we don't do it well in the arts. It's not that it couldn't be done well or shouldn't you could certainly make that argument. I make that argument a lot, but, but it, it's very difficult to scale. And so, you know, to the extent that we incorporate art into technology, it tends to make the, the project more expensive rather than technology easing the cost of what we're doing. Well, I mean, I,
0: I'll put, give a little rub on that. I think entry-level courses, so like your intro to your basics of, a lot of those to a certain extent, okay, fine, not ceramics, but like a lot of other of the artistic disciplines probably could be done online or scaled or all that. But the problem is... is Level two, level three, level four. That's when you, you you just can't do those at scale. Like they they need the one on ones, the or the even just three on ones, whatever. They they need a more intimate, engaged relationship that you know, like a a physics class or a math class or a law class, like those are always going to be far more profitable. Like the last school I taught at, it was, I think it was law was their most profitable by far, uh, you know, because they, they could put like 300 students into a law class and one teacher. They, they loved that.
1: Sure, yeah. And it's a question about what role, I think in the arts, mentorship has been this like, profoundly significant and important aspect to teaching. And I think you could make the argument in other, some other disciplines that would be much less important. A sense of like, I, have a, a, I met a faculty person who became my mentor in, in whatever your field is. But I, I do feel like if you, I'm sure as you're interviewing artists, almost all of them can point to an educator with whom they had, or multiple, with whom they had profound interpersonal relationships
0: you would be surprised how that's it, okay i'll give you there's actually a difference because in america that's not as common in europe that is much more common like it's i literally i just had another podcast this morning with a, a gentleman from the czech republic and he was talking about how the whole mentor apprentice relationship is incredibly important in europe like i'll give you i'll give you an example of exactly how important it still is in europe to this day when i went to go fill out an application as a teacher so a job application to teach they asked me who my mentor was it was literally a field on the application process and I was just like I don't have a mentor I'm an American we don't do that shit
1: (laughs) I'm lucky to have had a mentor or two it, it, and that maybe it's just I had the good fortune, I was l- lucky in that regard, and and I want to you know, and I want to duplicate that experience as a, as a teacher for for I want to invest in you know students I work with, and and so it's just it's tricky. Yeah, I think I think Europe is a different system, and probably that that sounds healthier. <laughs> What, what's done I'm, over there? I'm not sure. I
0: wish I had a mentor. I mean, to be honest, I went, like, when I chose my grad school, I chose my grad school specifically because I, there was this one professor I wanted to be my mentor. And I walked into the first day of class and she was just blatantly rude to me and, like, hated my work. <laughs>
1: I mean, I'm sorry to like, hear that.
0: Yeah. She, I mean, to the point where she was like, Are you sure you should be in art school? Mm. I'm like, Wow, fuck you. Like, seriously? <laughs> Day one, first day of class—that's the kind of shit you say to somebody. But yeah, right. So yeah, I mean, I wish the that the a little bit more of that mentor, I, you know, a little bit of an averaging, like a little less important in Europe and a little bit more important in America. I think would be really beneficial because there is a certain amount of that that is really beneficial, but there is also a certain amount of that sort of mentor-apprentice kind of a relationship that can be very detrimental as well. Because sure there's a there's the expectation that you're going to be the next generation of this person's style and and that can be a lot of pressure undue pressure even that 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 can crush a person's spirits like i know a lady in god where was she finland i think or something like this that she like literally studied under this extremely famous painter and there was this incredible pressure for her to be just like him
1: yeah yeah and i think what's the What's the old adage that you know nothing grows under a very tall tree? You know this there idea that yeah. that that can be crushing, And I think as an educator, it's really hard to play this fine line between you know really working closely with someone and then also encouraging them to do what they clearly are passionate about, which may actually be utterly different from what you, as the instructor would personally pursue. And it's it's humbling, right? And you sort of have to get out of your own way and realize like, oh, it's important that this person pursue something that that, you know, I never would have pursued. And actually once that happens, it's so rewarding to see a whole avenue of exploration that you never personally considered illuminated by somebody's progression through it. And you sort of recognize, oh, that's, I didn't know you could get there, but you still want to be supportive of this person. But your feelings get hurt sometimes because they choose to do someone else's class and not, not use the medium that you're well-versed in. And, you know, sometimes you take that personally, but you have to get out of your own way and just understand where they're coming from. What's motivating this? You know, what, what, what will really move this artist's life forward is not copying what you did. That would be a huge hindrance.
0: Yes. I always tell my students that I, I want them to be better than I ever could be. Like so, sure. I, I want them to go down directions and paths and investigations and research that that I couldn't have even fathomed. So, like to me, the whole nature of like university and even mentorship and stuff like that is sort of the idea of just standing on the shoulders of the people that came before you, but not necessarily mimicking or f- following in their footsteps, but building on the the
1: previous generation. Absolutely, and I, I've been very fortunate that I've been allowed to teach some somewhat experimental courses in my teaching career. And, and it's a wonderful moment to be able to tell a class that you have no idea how to do what it is we're trying to do. And, and you know, it's it's humbling where you say like, you know, I I really want, I think we should all try and do this and I don't exactly know how to do it. But it also seems to sometimes really encourage the students because they can sort of realize like, I can actually really inform this and I can get way ahead of where the where the professor is here and and that's just a remarkable when that happens. They kind of go out and do research, they bring it back, they share it with everybody and we all sort of learn from their exploration, which is so different from sort of, you know, here's the pathway that leads up to where I'm standing and can you just retrace that please.
0: It's hard because there's a balancing act that I run into when I'm teaching, which is like there's a certain amount of standardized knowledge that they need to gain like the way I often phrase it to my students is like there's a box that they need to learn in order to once they graduate think outside that box but they have (laughs) to learn the foundations first and and so like I don't really love it when students like here I'll I'll give you my very specific example because this is one I fucking hate (laughs) Students, you know, undergraduate students in particular who work in abstraction and I'm like, okay, you abstraction is the nature of you have mastered something to such a level that you have then chosen to abstract that thing, whether through thought or through process or whatever, but you must show that you've mastered the thing before you can choose to abstract that thing. But yet, I'll get students coming into like a photo one course and going like, oh, I'm making abstracts. I'm like, no, no, you don't even know how to use your fucking camera. So like, show me you know how to use your camera before you start abstracting. Like, that's a one big pet peeve of mine is that a lot of people seem to try to jump ideas. They get ahead of themselves way too fast. And they need to, there is a certain, like, to me it's like, like uh, an intro level class and like a level two class, those classes are teaching the box. But then, like a third and a fourth level class, that's where they can start to sort of figure out how to go like l- you know outside of it and get m- much more creative. So, certain amount of I guess craftsmanship and skill, let's say, in the beginning, with then progressive thinking closer to the graduation point.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's such a tricky balance. I think my weakness is that I often fall into this kind of facilitator technician role, where I just automatically buy into the, the, the project idea that the student has presented, and then I'm, because it's my nature, I'm then like, let's figure out how to solve all these technical problems in making this work. And then, and then the work happens, and you look at it, and you're like, we maybe should have spent more time on the conceptual part, because we, we put a lot of effort into this, and, and, and it's, not, it's not very well thought, it was not very well conceived. And, but and
0: technically... right
1: nailed it (laughs) and that's and that's something i try and work on and consciously and it's it's really tricky because you almost feel like you're putting the brakes on you're 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 the the friction and and you know of course people kind of resent that when you're saying you know slow down learn some things you know get some more background to what you're doing that's not always received well even though it's essential to the process
0: well and trying to implement that idea of the balance the the technical you know superiority I don't know if that was the horrible word for it but the technical proficiency mm-hmm. as well as the conceptual uh, construct that they need to be balanced like it's a really hard thing like I have seen you know I mean' we're, I'm 48 years old and I have seen artworks all over the world and all kinds of stuff and like there's a certain amount of like respect and appreciation I give to amazing craft and skill to to, to simply accomplish something you know and then there's an incredible appreciation I give to conceptual like great ideas but maybe not the best outcome like you know results of it and but the the magic happens when you can find that balance of both of those together and it's lovely for to hear like not only for myself but from you and from other teachers and other everybody else that I talk to is like everybody struggles with that.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and my personal feeling is that sometimes we've gone overboard in art education, I can say in the United States, I don't know about Europe, in terms of the leaning heavily on the conceptual side of things, where leaning heavily on the critique process, on the kind of socialization of the work and, and maybe paying less attention to sort of, you know, the, the fundamental, you know, craft aspects of making things, whether it's photography or sculpture or ceramics, what have you. And, and it is one of the things that draws me towards ceramics as a medium and also towards things like 3D printing and digital fabrication, because they, they're both grounded in a lot of attention to the way that things are made and the materials things are made of and really considering those materials.
0: Are you leaning towards a, a like an ecological interest in it as far as the materials? Because I know that's something that a lot of people
1: are sort of leaning into these days. Yeah, and, and I would hope it's not just like these days. I, 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 it's all bound up.
0: Uh, so sorry, that sounded so arrogant, I know, but go on. It's,
1: it's bound up in, in an ecological aspect, which is also tied to a, a sort of economic aspect, which I guess makes it political, right? And so I'm working with these 3D printers. They're, they're not the most accessible technology and I'm aware of this. But at the same time, I'm working with ceramics, which I would say is the most accessible technology. And, and I have printed things using clay that I dug in my backyard, like, you know, just with a shovel. And then I sift out the rocks and things. And it's funny to me. So part of me does that because it's just, it makes me crack up. But then also, there's this sense that I really like the idea that all the art materials I would need theoretically I could find in my backyard assuming that I uh, you know not the technological components but the material that the objects are made out of is this kind of ordinary material that we've lived with clay forever and and that has very well-known properties and, and it's not particularly you know it's naturally occurring we're never going to run out of it. so I love those those facets of it it's it's incredibly there's almost no cheaper medium when you when you think about the price of clay, What you're really talking about is like the price to move it from one place to another on its own it's not rare most i mean you could find clays that are unusual and rare but but a a red clay that we make things out of is one of the most abundant materials on the planet and so uh, yeah i love that i i have tried to avoid really decidedly various types of resins and things and even in the world of 3d printing i just can't don't want to engage at all with any piece of equipment that's re- gonna require me to do like the full hazmat situation, which is actually a large percentage of of things that you would 3D print, you really need to protect yourself from those materials. Even printing with plastic, which which I do a fair amount of in my teaching and in my own work, I'm trying to find the most agreeable, like the, the best bad choice, you know, the, the the most agreeable plastic that you could work with. But yeah, I've I always always have avoided, you know, fiberglass and resin and all these things that like solve a lot of problems for sculptors in the sense that here's a material that's pretty easy to use and it's incredibly strong and it doesn't cost that much. And lightweight. Lightweight. And that often that is like the, the recipe that leads to extraordinary toxicity. And when you track the constituent elements of those materials down, it's right back to some kind of petroleum-based thing. And I just I just try and avoid that as much as I can in my teaching and in my own artwork.
0: Oh, I know I had a friend of mine who was had a 3D printer in his office in our in our school, in, a, in which of course has no proper ventilation or anything. And so anytime he ran his 3D printer, he would have to like put fans out and all that, which of course then just blew all that stuff into the hallway for all the rest of the offices then to get it as well. So it was. Just not good at all. Like people don't think about the fact that generally, specifically when you're using like the the plastics and the polymers and things like this, like it's just off gassing all kinds of horrible stuff. Like you should not be doing that in an enclosed space. Period.
1: Yeah, it's partially combusted material. You're putting it out everywhere, and that can range from no more benign than cooking on a stove with oil, which isn't actually all that benign, or it can be extraordinarily like car fire level of toxicity, burning tires level of, of off-gassing. And, and so it's definitely one of those things that people absolutely should research. And I, I do feel like all those printers should be ventilated and often they're not, and it does drive me crazy. And it's, it's tough because people see technologies, like my students will say, hey, I read about this kind of printing. It has no layer lines, it's really smooth, it's really beautiful, can we do that? And here's the machine, it doesn't even cost that much. And I'm, and I'm always having to say, like, have you looked into what that material is that they're using and where that comes from and how you dispose of it and how you clean it up if you spill it and what happens if you get it on your skin, you know? And so there's just a, a very high level of toxicity some of these things. So personally, I, I just try and steer totally clear of that.
0: It's a totally stupid question, but I never even thought about it. it. Are things that are those kind of like plastic polymer things that are 3D printed, can they be recycled?
1: Yes and no. Like a lot of things with plastics, Technically, yes, you can recycle them, and also certain types can be composted. They can break down naturally, and they can be made of natural materials like corn oil. But in practice, it's usually really, really energy and, and effort intensive to recycle it, so much so that it's going to you know, make it not cost effective. And then from the biodegradability aspect, it, it has not lived up to my understanding of the initial sort of hype, like they'll, they'll talk about bioplastics, which are made out of corn oil, for example, and that this can be compostable, but you sort of read the fine print and it's like, you know, needs to be in an industrial compost facility that has a lot of heat added and a lot of, you know, biology happening in there. So I don't have a, uh, any plastic printing solution that I can throw in my garden and just watch it decay over a, a normal human time frame. I have some confidence that if I'm using a material that is based on corn oil, that its toxicity is going to be very similar to me cooking in the kitchen. And, and I can kind of live with that. We've all accepted that, I suppose, to some extent, depending on how well ventilated your kitchen is. But then there's all these other materials that are just immediately adjacent to that, that, that can get much nastier, but look exactly the same. And that's, that's what's really tricky is if you're not reading the fine print, you can very easily slide from a, a sort of biomaterial into something that's in my opinion, you know, just a whole order of magnitude more problematic and and they're almost impossible to look at those things and tell which one's which like after they've been, you know, processed in the way that they get processed. So you really have to do some research with that.
0: Right. They're not marked with like the little recycling symbol with a number two in it or anything, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think recyclability is a big issue in plastic printing. Obviously in ceramic printing, that problem is instantly solved. You print something, you don't like it, add water, you're right back to clay, you know, and and we've been doing this for millennia. So so that part of it is is really nice.
0: All right. I, actually, I'd like to get a little bit into that, The yeah. like your work too. So I'm looking at your work. Now I've had ceramics in my I guess my collection, it's not my mm-hmm. collection, but like in my own household, <laughs> sure. I've, I've, I've had some ceramics and my cats have destroyed all of them. So, <laughs> so, and your things seem to be rather large. Is Am I seeing the scale correctly? I'm looking at your website.
1: You're seeing the scale correctly. You're not seeing the size correctly. Does that sound incredibly pretentious? Yes. Awesome. Nailed it
0: okay, wait, no, I see it now, okay, yeah, six and a half inches, seven and a half inches, okay, yeah, they're not as large scale as I thought they were.
1: I love to think about this difference between scale and size, right? And so they tend to have proportions and they tend to reference much larger, what you would imagine is a much larger form. And I do get this thing constantly, I can't decide if it's good or bad, where people see the work in person and they always, like almost always say, oh, it's much smaller than I thought it was. And so it's operating in a scale. And so what, I, what I've come to realize is that I, for whatever reason, I don't make things that exist in sort of like one-to-one scale. Like you think if, I'm, if, if I were making pottery and, and pottery isn't my, my focus, it needs to be the right size, you know, it's for use. But if you're making something that's referencing an archway or, or a roof or an architectural form, it can suggest in its proportioning that it is, you know, it can feel as if it's much larger and so I actually feel like there's a similarity between the experience of a, of a very large space, like a cathedral or something, and then the way that your body moves through it. And also the experience of like something incredibly small. Like you think about like Indian miniature painting or something where there's someone working with like a one hair brush and they're just doing all this work under a microscope. And that when you see something that's really small and detailed, you sort of project yourself into that space. I feel like it's weirdly more bodily than when the thing is at your own scale.
0: What I'm actually interested in th- to hear about though is also the balancing act because you're a teacher. So you get a full time salary from teaching. You produce artwork, which basically, for lack of a better word of explaining it, allows you to teach. So, like, because you have to keep up with your exhibitions sure. and your all these kind of things in order to not only keep your teaching job, but also potentially get promoted in your teaching job as well. Do you sell works? Or is that just not of your interest kind of thing?
1: No, I do. I'm not a prolific seller of work. I'm also not a prolific maker of work. I'm a prolific worker. I'm never not working, but I can, you know, end the year with like a dozen fairly small objects and feel like that was a wildly productive stretch of time. And then I see colleagues, it's like, oh, you you produce hundreds of things just at a rate that I can't fathom. So I do sell work. I've Never, I can say I've never had a prolonged stretch where I was able to sell work, and and that's my you know that's going to afford my my whole living. I've maybe had brief stretches where that has worked out, but few and far between. So selling the work as a component, you know, I I I love the opportunity to sell the work, but uh, you know, I, I produce a, a relatively small amount of work. I love to have projects that take a long time. I I like to work on things a long time. So yeah, it's it's a balance. I've taught for kind of a long time, so I guess I've gotten pretty accustomed to that relationship that you're talking about, as far as how the career goes. My wife is also an artist and also a teacher, and so you know we're we're both always having that balance as well.
0: Which I was uh, my last question actually was about the nature of like two creative people in a household. How does that go over?
1: I'd like to think we have four creative people in the household. We have two small children. So, you know, it's been really great. I I I can't imagine. I'm not I'm not an easy person to live with. I think if if you weren't involved in a creative activity, I don't know how you would re, how you would handle being, you know, understanding the life of an artist. But one thing that's been really fantastic is despite both being sculptors, b- despite both working with ceramics as a primary material, there is almost no overlap as far as the forms and and the aesthetics and the and the it, nobody's ever mistaking our work for each other, you know. And it and so that has been very helpful in the sense that like if Shannon has been invited to be in an exhibition, I don't have to feel like you, you know it's like well well they. They weren't looking for what I do because it's so different from that and, and vice versa. So I do think what I'm getting at is I think sometimes that can be a competitive arrangement and that's really problematic and, and certainly can think of examples of that. And that hasn't been the case. I, I think it's just been, I don't know, one of the things I'm just f- fortunate to, to have, you know, found uh, a, a partner who I, I think gets what I do and, and vice versa. And it's, it, I'm very optimistic on, on two creative people in a relationship in the same, you know, family.
0: I had experiences with dating women for long periods of time that were also creative and it ended up going horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, (laughs) So I ended up giving, like creating a rule for myself, like no more dating artists because it just, and uh, maybe it was me because, you know, of course I was the constant in in those multiple relationships. So maybe it was the me part of it, and not the them part of it. So, yeah.
1: Well, I guess I could say every other relationship I was in didn't work out. So... I'm happy that, that this one has.
0: That brings up another question that I've had a lot come up in, in these conversations, which is about having children. Uh, mm-hmm. did, did having children in any way influence or affect your creative career? I'm trying to sort of phrase that right. Cause I don't want it to be like specifically, did you change your art form or anything? But like in general, you know, pro or con or sort of like general effects to your career.
1: Yeah, certainly. And it's also really helped me understand the current conversation around gender imbalance and, and biases because we are doing our best as a family to, to share that responsibility as equi- equitably as we can, right? Because we, we both work full time, we're both trying to produce bodies of artwork, and we're both, you know, have this responsibility. To children, and it's just a whole different thing. I mean, it's just so much to do all the time with the kids. So yeah, I mean, like, totally changes your career. Totally changes, I think, your brain wiring. I think it changes your body. You know, I mean, really, there's like studies on this. It's like the different hormones are released because you're you're in proximity to, to to young humans. You know, and so it's actually. I feel like I've kind of changed my priorities and my value structures a lot. Not even consciously, but just through that experience, I, f- I feel concerns that I used to have just leave my body. <laughs> I, I
0: hope that's healthy. Yeah, I was going to say, is that a good thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, so yeah, it's changed everything. Having children changed everything, and and I'm you know, really enjoying. Uh, it's it's impossible to imagine life otherwise at this point.
0: Just to be clear, though, go back. So you you said you have two children. What gender and what age?
1: Sure. We have a girl and a boy. The girl is 10 and the boy is six. So we've been at this for a little while now. And it's been wonderful. I actually really like having them, their input on what I do, their perception of what I do, both as a teacher and as an artist is, is really funny and, and engaging. And it, it's fun to work with them on, on creative projects. And, and to that helps you connect with like, yeah, why did I get interested in this in the first place? Because I was my son's age, I think, when I really started to get interested in art. And again, I don't want to push him to do art because that's what I do. But at the same time, you can kind of see that recognition of how to put two things together, How to what happens when you apply color to something, you just see that in someone else's, you see their eyes light up, you know, and, and, it, and they can't be cool about it because they're a small child, they're not trying to be cool. And just like overwhelmed with like the simplest thing, like adding glitter to something. It's like, oh my God, look at what that did, you know? And so it's wonderful to connect with that on a kind of daily basis. And remember like, that is why I started doing this it was because of probably reactions I had as a five-year-old to material, you know, to like, I squeeze this piece of clay and this weird thing happens. I just want to keep doing this for several decades.
0: Yeah. The standard of putting a piece of clay in your hand and it comes through your fingers. Like we've all done that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, it's been a remarkably positive thing for me, even though it's like utterly exhausting. And and the pandemic's just been brutal. I mean, just decimated your workday, where you know we used to have a lot of after-school activities. We're not doing any of that because you know for for COVID exposure reasons, you know, to to, to minimize. And so it's like this tiny window where they're in school, like really from like nine to two, is where you have to pack like so much of your life into that, not that you can't, you know, do things outside of that time, but they're, they're at a young enough age, they need a lot of attention and, and you know, you're just always, always busy with something. And, and so it's just, the pandemic's been so hard. I mean, at one point we had four, I had to set up four high quality simultaneous Zoom calls, you know, in the house on a regular basis. Cause I'm teaching, Shannon's teaching, and the kids are students and all in remote education. So it's just like, Just like having the bandwidth to run for video and audio connections that are good and then realizing like, well, one of them is too young to even read. Like, how are they going to do online education if you haven't yet learned how to read? And it was brutal to the point where we were debating like which one of us is going to leave our job for a period of time because it got to that where it was like, we're not doing what we need to be doing and one of us is going to have to stop teaching and then right around that time, they reopened our kids' school, and we sent them back, and then we were able to kind of continue on. But we really did get almost to a breaking point where it was like, should we leave the job? You know, should we just hunker down here?
0: How is COVID these days in there? You're in Pennsylvania, right?
1: Yeah, I'm in central Pennsylvania. Penn state, Penn state, right? Yeah, so we're right in the middle of the state.
0: And my grandfather went to Penn State.
1: Oh, that's awesome! It's. I think
0: I forget which Penn. What's the other <laughs> major Pennsylvania state one, U- university of Penn?
1: Well, University of Pennsylvania is a private school in Philly, so it's it's much different. And it was yeah. Penn State. It was yeah. Penn State for sure. We're, yeah, it's there's it's a huge network. There's like 26 campuses and all that. But yeah, we're right in the middle of the state. It's a huge school, and we had uh, enormous numbers. I've had so many students who have had COVID, so many, and it's it's been difficult. So you know. It's a fairly regular thing that you realize like, oh, okay, so I have this student that I was in pretty close contact with who now has COVID and I guess I'm going to go get tested for the millionth time. I did a lot of my teaching remotely because the the tech aspect of what I do allowed me to do that. But my wife, Shannon, teaching uh, 100% in ceramics, wanted to do everything in person and, you know, that p- just presented a lot of challenges, but she got through it and, and I mean, mostly through it at this point. But yeah, it's been tremendously challenging. It's like, it's also been this incredible opportunity to learn how to teach remotely and then learn about like what you could do, you know, in terms of creating asynchronous content, in terms of recording lectures, in terms of posting things online more effectively. So I do feel like there's a, a, a little bit of a opportunity there as well, because it's, it's kind of changed a little bit about the way i teach
0: but going back to the whole like state of teaching these days all it's going to do is there there a lot of the schools are going to be like oh so we don't have to pay for a room and and a lecture hall and all this you can do it online well let's just keep doing it online because that's free for us and so therefore it's more cost effective like i have this horrible feeling that it's going to end up being Something where like they're not going to take many classes back onto campus because they can make more money doing it online,
1: it is a tricky thing when something that you're invested in and interested in as a teacher also happens to align with some of the worst impulses of the university, but as somebody producing podcasts, like you understand how you can you know remotely create content that that people want to receive and and you know focus on, and so it's also hopefully an opportunity for faculty. I mean, I had this weird experience where I'm teaching these fully remote courses and realizing like the only thing that would change in, right now if I moved to a different university would, would be like I would have to log into a slightly differently branded website to post this content. So in theory, it also would create a lot of capability for academics to, to shuttle around if they don't like their current situation. So I mean, I would think there would be some agency in that. Right. Because you're not tied to like, you know, I have this lab that I work with and I could never reproduce it. It's like, no, actually, I I could take all my stuff with me and leave if this situation was was not ideal. the The plastic three D printers that I love to use are actually made in in the Czech Republic. There's a Pursa, brand, right? Prusa. Yeah, I have I own like six of those. They're fantastic. So.
0: Yeah, I went by their their shop the other day, and they um, are not very receptive. But I think it had more to do with COVID than anything else. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they have this huge warehouse.
1: It's a great product, and I've often wondered how they can be based in Europe and and hit the price points they do. But I suppose the Czech Republic is is a different animal than being in uh let's say you know the uk or, or or something like that
0: very much so yeah i mean i've heard great things about their stuff and i as i said i tried to go over there because actually one of the ideas that i have do you do you have any contacts there by chance
1: no i don't
0: okay because i was i actually wanted to meet with i think it's what joe yeah 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 joe when i was gonna have him on the podcast and then i wanted to do like a panel discussion of people like people all working with 3d printing and all this kind of stuff and do like a panel discussion but they never responded to my emails
1: people became very interested in 3d printing during the pandemic it definitely is one of those things that people decided they wanted to do like like video gaming and any number of other things so in the same way that you can't get <laughs> in the same way that you can't get a good graphics card right now, you can't get a Prusa printer without a lot of lead time. And I get the sense that they are swamped, not to be totally defensive of them, but they have been really responsive when I've needed tech support and whatnot. But I I, I know from their lead times that they're sort of overwhelmed. And I think they're also trying to operate a factory in a in a COVID environment, and that's gotta be quite something else. But they have been Really active. A lot of what they do is very open source, and so from the beginning, even before there was a Prusa company, Joseph Prusa was just out there on the internet, just giving away ideas uh, that people adopted and ran with, and and being part of a community and a community builder. And to their credit, I mean, obviously it's a business they have to protect their business, but they haven't done what many companies have done, which is to just lock down all their IP and and say like, you know, we own this now even though it was created in an open source community, we're going to now patent all these things, which many companies have done that. So I, I I really appreciate the fact that they have been supportive of the community. So even the clay printing I do, I use the software that they work on for their printers, and I've just adopted it to that machine. And I can do that with a lot of confidence, because I know it's an open source project. I know a lot of the you know i've met some people who are involved in that project and i just feel like it's a really good community thing and they're not just going to they don't have the ability to just turn off that pipeline so i can kind of rely on the software tools that they make which were designed to be adaptable to different types of situations so i really appreciate their presence in the space because i think a lot of american companies that have since disappeared just got into that mode of like well we accepted all this vc cash and now we actually have to lock up these patents cuz that's where the value is and then before long, like, you know, they just, they'd have, they lose their user base and, and the whole thing just gets absorbed by some other company, you know, the routine and then uh, yeah. So Prusa is a standout in my opinion, that they're independent, but successful, that they've balanced quality with kind of lowish costs. There's a lot of pressure on them because I think there are machines that are frankly just knockoffs of theirs coming out of different countries in the world where labor is infinitely cheaper. And they're always having to balance that because they're making their thing open source. So they will actually field tech support calls from people who have knockoff machines. And they have to say like, no, actually you didn't buy that from us. That just looks like the thing that we made. And that if we made it, it probably wouldn't have this problem that you're encountering. So anyway, Hmm. I like that company a lot, but I've never been to Prague. So it's always given me this warm feeling knowing that it's a beautiful city, knowing that everyone who goes there raves about it. And then knowing that this technology I'm really dependent on, weirdly, is like headquartered in Prague, makes me feel like it's definitely on my short list of places I, I can't wait to visit.
0: It's in a very interesting neighborhood, actually, the the their place. But so if you if you need me to, I will be happy to run over to their their warehouse and pick you up something or, or talk to somebody on <laughs> behalf. Cool. So Just feel free to ask.
1: Thanks. Thanks.
0: I don't know Great. they'll actually let me
1: in the door, but I'll t- give it a sure. try. Sure. Well, hopefully things open up a bit as as COVID recedes. Hopefully, any last topics you want to touch on? Probably not. I'm slightly involved in NFTs, but I won't give you too much pushback about that. You're you're. Uh, I felt like about to go on a rant, but I, and I get it.
0: You no, know, I, I'm. I keep like bringing up slash. Um, saying horrible things about nfts simultaneously simply because i I don't know enough about them and so my initial reaction to them is very negative it so that's where and and it's not because of all the press and all that kind of stuff it's because i tried i dug into it and i looked into it. i was like oh you know this is a great idea because i'm i'm a photographer and i've done right. graphic design and all kinds of stuff and so like i've got thousands upon thousands of images that I could make into NFTs. This is magnificent. Finally, I could like earn some money off of these things that are just sitting on hard drives doing nothing. And I looked into it and like the amount of money that I would have to pay to do the, what's it called? The, the gassing, the,
1: the... The gas fees on Ethereum.
0: Gas fees. Yeah. I, I sort of felt like it was basically, it felt like a company came up with an idea of how to sell an equivalent of a a cryptocurrency and they said, Oh, you know what we can do? We can make it visual so we can make money off of artists. So we're just going to create a cryptocurrency that has a visual token thing that makes it so that it got more of a unique quality to each individual one that you can buy. And we'll make a bunch of money off of the artists who do this. And so I, I still feel like at the moment it's run by a corporation of people using artists for them to make money and i and i look forward to the idea of when that becomes more equal like so that mm-hmm. it's a, a that artists are a little bit more involved in it and it's not so much a large corporation making money off the backs of artists that's my rant there you go
1: no for sure and i'm not involved in, uh, in the ethereum marketplace for for those reasons and additional reasons on top of those that have to do with sustainability environmentally and energy usage and things like this. But what I did find was I, I follow a lot of artists on on social media, on Twitter, I'm sure you do. And, and so a lot of new media artists that I follow, um, thinking of people like Zach Lieberman or Matthew Plummer Fernandez or Helena Sarin, I noticed that suddenly they were minting NFTs of some of their work and that some of those people were also doing it on what they were calling clean NFTs on a, on a sort of alternative, currency uh, on the site called uh, HIC et NUNC, which is Latin for here and now. And so I got interested in that and really started looking into it. And, and what I like about that specific marketplace is that it really feels to me like a sort of for artists, by artists project. That said, of course, it's like wildly less profitable than the whole Ethereum chain. You're not having these, you know, $70 million sales take place on that chain yet. Yeah. And so I got really interested in that and I did find when I dug deeper into that specific corner of the NFT world, which is not the main corner, but a little side corner, that I found a spirit that reminded me of like alternative art spaces or collectives or things like that. A lot of community support, a lot of sharing things, a lot of experimentation. Some people moved to that platform because they were quick to enable interactive components and and running code directly versus just sort of here's a JPEG, you know, that's just is what it is. And then I started hearing all these stories of of new media artists, and and I'm sure you can relate to this, you know, saying like, I don't have a version, I haven't before now had a version of my work that was saleable in the way that, you know, painters and sculptors market and sell their work because, uh, you know, the the ubiquity of, of images, things that I post on the internet is such that nobody has to pay for this stuff. And this is a way of, of creating, whether you believe in this idea or not, and you know, I think you can certainly have an argument, a, a, kind, of artific- a kind of digital scarcity that, that mimics physical scarcity in the real world, and that that creates an opportunity for people to say that there is an addition of 50 instead of this is automatically an infinite number of this thing that I've created that anybody can download and use. Yeah, I'm
0: not sure that that's my concern. It's interesting because like a lot of the times when people bring up NFTs, they talk about scarcity, they talk about um, authenticity. So like the ability to say like, oh, this is the, the original, whatever kind of thing. None of those are my concerns. None of those were the <laughs> reasons why I was like, sure. I was looking at NFTs as a way to take the, you know, hundreds of thousands of digital files that basically like, I don't want to put them out in a gallery setting or in a, in a formal artistic setting. Cause they're not like my best stuff. And maybe they don't even, they're not even like of my oeuvre, you know, like they're just uh-huh, like, uh-huh. they're, they're not like they, if you saw them, you would never say, Oh, that's made by Matt Dole's. Cause like, it's a completely different topic or, or medium or whatever. And so, so it would, to me, it would look like this really great way to, sort of tr- just tr- play around with some other things that like maybe I tried something and I didn't build enough of it to make an entire exhibition worthy of it or I didn't push it far enough to do it. But but they're still cool. Like they still work, but there either aren't enough of them or they're just not f- completely fulfilled in whatever reason. But I thought I was sort of thinking that the NFTs would fit the bill for that. Like I could, I could take these sort of almost like tests or trials or you know unfulfilled you know, artistic series kinds of things and do it there but what I felt again here's my rant again here's another rant my yeah. other rant about NFTs is, is that I feel like they're a uh, popularity contest I feel like it's high school because like to do it well i.e. to sell a number of the works you have to have people who follow your work because from what I can tell and and this is I guess this is a knock on NFT artists, but like the the work, oftentimes not all, but oftentimes is not like, oh my god, that's so astounding! It's such a beautiful thing. It's 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 cute. It's fun. It's interesting. It's you know visually composed well, or the colors are lovely, whatever. But it's not an amazing piece of art that I feel the need to own, kind of thing. And so I don't. F- I feel like it ends up being a bit more popularity contest. So, like, I know who was it? There was some famous actress that like put up like a nude photo oh, of sure, herself. Sure. That that you know she did. So, but she has a million followers on Instagram. So, of course, she sold that out immediately. Whereas, if I were to put up a nude photo of somebody, nobody's going to buy it. <laughs> you know, like it's it, it it I just yeah I'm. But is is that I'm,
1: not is that not a almost perfect mirror of the not NFT art world? I mean, is it structurally different in any way?
0: I was so scarred by like popularity issues in high school that I just don't want to involve myself in them yeah, again yeah. 30 years later.
1: Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, what I would say about this particular corner of that universe that I've been invested in is that, yes, that's definitely a big part of the dynamic. It's also like whoever is an early adopter of tech is overrepresented in this space. And so that's at the exclusion of any number of other folks walking around. That's a problem. But also, I'm engaged with this in a very low stakes way. So I'm on a a platform that is by far not one of the highest profile platforms. And like you, I have this process through which I generate objects. And that process involves numerous digital iterations of things, including 3d models and drawings and renderings and all these things. And, And again, it's not what I've typically exhibited, but it's not, hopefully, utterly uninteresting either. And I know that like, for example, if I make a little animation of something that I'm working on and post it on, let's say Instagram, that it might be as well received as any other object that I might make. And then that makes you scratch your head a little bit. Like, well, I, I don't ever exhibit those things, you know, and then suddenly it was like, oh, here's a paradigm that works for this little animation that, that, that kind of spilled out of this sculpture that I was making. And maybe I'll try and make this as an NFT. And I found a, a small but receptive audience to that and and I would think it's almost like a again like it, like a little pop-up show it, it, you know it's, it's kind of off to the side here I'm not trying to make this my main way of getting the work out but it's been interesting to see
0: okay I want to know though have you sold works if so sort of how many or like how is it how has it worked for you
1: in a, in about a 4 month span I've posted four different things that I've made and each one was an addition of between 20 and 40. And they all sold. They all sold at very, very modest prices. (laughs) This is not like running neck and neck with with any other source of income that I have. Okay.
0: So for like a penny.
1: (laughs) They, I think the original mint price for the edition, if I'm going to work it out in US dollars is between like 10 and $20. Right. But I'm viewing this as like a parallel would be like, let's say I took a drawing that I made and made a bunch of t-shirts from that. I still screened a bunch of those and I'm selling those for 20 to $30. And it's representing my artwork, but it's obviously not the sculpture that I make. It's a different context. And it's an addition. I'm not trying to say this is the, you know, it's like I've decided there's gonna be 50 of these. Um, so I'm kind of putting it in that kind of context for myself. What's interesting is some of those things have resold for considerably more money, not like crazy money, but uh, let's say a multiple of like at least 10 of what I originally, you know, so if I sold the thing for Twenty dollars that it's sold for, like two or three hundred or four hundred. You know, one of the not not often, but that has happened, and so that's that's weird and, and interesting. But th- I do get royalties from that. I'm getting fifteen percent of any of those royalties. So there there is a, a, something really equitable about that. And at this present moment, it's a good it's a good thing. But I also am aware of and really concerned about a lot of the things that are encroaching on this space that could take this little pocket that I think is really cool and just kind of wipe that out through a number of different forces.
0: Do tell.
1: You have this thing, it started not so long ago, like March of this year, this platform started, right? So when it starts, nobody's making any money from it. Nobody's famous, nobody's, there's no hierarchy. It's just, hey, somebody opened up this little marketplace, anybody can put things on here. And so you can imagine, like the spirit is like, great. You know, Here's established people, not established people, all commingling, collecting each other's work quite a lot of just giving stuff away. Here, you take one of these, I'll take one of these. Over time, certain objects, for whatever reason, whether it's popularity contests, whether it's quality of the work, whether it's the standing of the person or the cultural moment that we're in, you know, there becomes this differentiation. And then some of these things kind of pop. And then what's a little bit weird about the internet in general and about NFTs and about social media is when things pop, they can go insane. Like, a hundred times a thousand times the original sale price and we're talking about just one month later two months later you know things develop their own kind of momentum and suddenly it just it's really complicated when when you have some community members in the space saying hey i quit all my day jobs i'm doing this now check out this check out this cool house that i'm buying and then you have all these other people who kind of came up at the same time saying like i'm still waiting for my second or third sale like and i you know what's what's going on here and and so you know you could imagine this getting torn apart a little bit you could imagine a community coming apart over all these different issues and and at the moment one of the concerns is is about representation i mean the, this nft space skews very white male the crypto space outlandishly so i mean like like indefensibly so And so there's this you know conversation about like this platform was a little bit of an escape from that in in its origins because we had you know it is very international there are a lot of different types of people uh, and types of work represented Uh, and how long can you hold on to that when success starts to and and money starts to flow into some of these projects not flow into others you know inequities are, are unearthed as the project grows control over the whole project is a very contentious thing you know what should this platform look like? Should it grow? Should it not grow? Should it merge with some other platform? All these different things. One issue that has been really upsetting for a lot of people, the people who are on this platform have chosen it because it's environmentally sustainable and, and it's like thinking about that issue, but then their work can be kind of packaged and sold on a different network that doesn't have those concerns without their permissions. And that's very problematic in the same way that having your work resold in a gallery that you never would have shown with is problematic, but it, you don't have control of that once it leaves your studio, right?
0: Well, the other thing I heard about is like if you sell on one NFT flat platform, and then for some reason it ends up on a different NFT platform, that the royalties might not adhere because it went to a different blockchain, if I understand it correctly. I'm so bad with the terminologies.
1: Yeah, I'm not great with these terminologies either. But yeah, the royalties thing is a is a real issue. Some it's been an honor system up till now and it's a small enough community that if somebody makes a huge sale and doesn't do the royalties, there's like a lot of people come out of the woodwork to like grab the pitchforks and demand that those royalties be sent and to some extent that has worked where the the buyer sheepishly says, "Okay, fine." Here's your here's your 10% or 15%, whatever it is. But you would imagine as something scales, that becomes, you know, the, the internet people with pitchforks thing becomes less effective. But also the environmental thing is real. Like you you chose to show your work in a platform that has thought about the energy usage that it that is associated with it. And then someone and you've been very clear about, you know, why you positioned it in this way. And then someone else just moves it to another chain that some of these are actually really energy intensive. I don't want to get into technical stuff behind that, but it just, each transaction, like those gas fees, cost that much because they involve a huge amount of computing power that is effectively, it's just incredibly wasteful just to take all this capability to just churn through a transaction and to burn a lot of energy in doing so. So some artists, rightfully, in my opinion, have chosen not to participate in that. Say so like, if it's going to be that energy intensive, I'm not participating. But then the collector who wants to, Make a quite a lot of money. It's like, well, great. I'll buy your thing in your little green, your cute little green marketplace over here, and then I'll move it to the major leagues, and we're going to make some money here.
0: It sounds just like the real physical art
1: market. It, yes, <laughs> so similar. So sad. The upshot of that is, I'm sure you can think of spaces within the the, the existing art world that just. Do their thing their own way, whether it's an alternative space or a, a cooperative or a collective or something that is endowed by a foundation that has a brilliant vision of, of equity. And so it's possible that somebody could create marketplaces in this world that are as interesting and as ethical as your favorite example of, of a, a space that you really love, the way that it's run and managed and, and exists. But then it's also going to be possible for someone to be incredibly mercenary and and just extract every last bit of wealth that they can out of this system.
0: Yeah, I'm not a bit. Ba- I, I, I'm so bad about this, but like, I wish that money did not get involved in creativity. Like, I feel like artists and creative people would be making far more amazing whatever they make if there was not money involved.
1: Yeah, I. I I think you're probably right about that. And it's yeah. And I don't know that I have much to add other than agreeing. It's, it's problematic.
0: It's unfortunate because I mean, like I, I'm sort of getting a little bittery depressed sad about the whole state of it because like, I keep hearing about things like free ports and tax, you know, tax shelters and money laundering and all these things that go into the art world that, I mean, a, I wish they weren't part of the art world that's one thing but B none of these kinds of like financial bent things all this kind of, actually benefit artists they benefit these wealthy people who do these things to either avoid paying this or you know just launder this or do that and none of it benefits the artists. so like basically art has just become a commodity that these rich people are throwing around and then it sort of skews the art market in a weird way because like if like you know if if somebody if i put out a piece of art and let's say some russian oligarch pays a million dollars for it all of a sudden my going price is now a million dollars so like now i have to go to all my other locations that i was selling things for ten thousand dollars and say hey this one person paid a million dollars so that's now my new price so now that sort of screwed the whole system because i Uh, realistically i was valued at ten thousand dollars and that's a a good price for my work let's say but this one person who had a lot of money and basically wanted to launder some money or do a tax shelter or whatever it was paid a million dollars for it all of a sudden it's now screwed my career and a lot of those people don't give a shit about whether or not they're hurting artists and that sort of just bothers me
1: yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and I, I've heard gallerists complain that that you know there are certain segments of society that a generation ago would frequent galleries who are now priced out. Right? That it you know if if you have a, a very successful career but you're not in the financial services or tech industry, you, you're you know an upper middle class person that maybe this is just way out of reach now.
0: <laughs> well, well, that's also because middle class has gone away in America. Well, that's, that's it, a whole yeah. different issue. Yeah. <laughs>
1: different podcast yeah
0: yeah totally different conversation all right well thank you very much for your time this has been great fun
1: yeah very much appreciate it thanks for having me
0: thank you for listening all the way to the end of our conversation and we thank you for your support in helping to build a stronger arts and creative community I would appreciate it if you would also share this with your friends, family, co-workers, anybody with some interest in the arts, because building that networking community is at the core of our mission. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic and Kunst i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. Thank you.